I have a screen um, that I'd like you guys to see. Not this one. There it is. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Our problem is that we are too bad. Thus, a good God can't be around bad people. So guess what? If you, if we invite Jesus into our hearts, Jesus can deal with our sin problem, then we can go to heaven, the end. Derek, if you wouldn't mind, just leave that up for a few minutes. Oh, mama. Oh, mama. Christians here, after hearing that, after seeing that, I want to ask you an extremely generic question, but a pertinent one. Why do you follow Jesus? Is it because of this? Is it because of this gospel that's on the screen? The issue with this westernized, Americanized, individualized gospel we just read is it's absolutely right. The problem is it's not right enough. Altering why or how or where or when we follow Jesus. We should all be very, very weary of this species of a gospel or any shadow form of it. Why, you ask? Because analyze it for a moment. Look at it. This form of truth can almost be perverted to serve any needs we possibly have. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life or your fame or your prestige or your happiness or your relationships. Jesus died for you so you can go to heaven. So we can have a perfect marriage, so you can be saved from hell? This shadow form has an adverse impact on the church and this church, on our following and our discipleship. And what's the adverse impact? The missing links. The missing links. Meaning, where's the dynamic, a new relationship between who we are now and our new identity or our, our relationship with God or one another, the church? Where's the dynamic and new relation between who we are in Christ and our possessions, our responsibilities, our purposes, and our mission? Which leads me to my point, and what in the world we're going to be doing on Sundays for the next month, is as a church, we want to reach people and introduce them to Jesus. Amen. Boom. Holla. Whatever. That's it. Amen. But... <laughs> but... Our aim is to not merely reach people with an emotional conversion and then bye, and then they just go on about their way. Our aim, our aim, collective church's aim, is to help one another grow in a flourishing relationship with Jesus. How? Hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me. By cultivating a culture of maturing believers who are responsible for those missing links, those spheres of relationship, that being to Jesus with a profile as his followers. That's today's talk, very introductory. But also to the church with a profile as family. As family. To what we possess as stewards and to what our relationship is like to this world as disciple makers. Basically, we're asking the question for the next month of this. What is our discipleship direction supposed to look like now that we say we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ? What is our discipleship direction supposed to look like when we say we follow Jesus? We're followers. So in order to discover that direction, we have to see where the one we're following goes. And we do that with the Bible. So Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 18. If you have it, read along. If you want some tactile Bibles, they're in the back. 
if you hate paper, that's on the screen. But as we're reading this verse, I want to invite you to see if you notice something. As I read these words. Verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, that's Jesus, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Pete Pete, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Verse 19. And he said to them, and now stop. Did you feel it? Did you see it? Like the gospel is rumbling. The ground is rumbling. It's a spiritual and theological tremor that is vibrating through these very precise and chosen words. They're very precise. Everything was put in perfect place. Matthew, the author, a chief tax collector, so he's IRS, or, you know, basically. So he's very detail-oriented. So when you read the gospel of Mark, it's allegedly the, the account of Peter, so it's all over the place. Then wham, boom, and then Jesus did this. Wham, he oh, it was so great. And then Jesus called me Satan. Oh, it was just a, that's Mark's gospel. It's lacking in details, and it's just more the beating heart of what's happening. But Matthew, Matthew is the veins. It's the nervous system. It communicates sharply, so we have to pay attention to word layout. So when we read verse 18 again, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Or, and he said to them, it's more than a mere sentence. It's, it's a keyhole, okay? And to unlock it, we need to understand who Jesus is interacting with. So imagine, put on your imaginary helmets, whatever. Imagine, these are the types of individuals majority of us would ignore at a coffee shop. They're forgettable. They're ignorable. These are the type of people that on Venice Beach, we'd go, oh. These are the type of people that smell like the earth with calloused hands and ratty beards. And at that time, these fishermen were cultural nobodies, identified as the lacking, the uneducated, the backwood residents, uh, the mighty ducks, the low-income Galileans. I want to make a palms joke right now, but I'm not going to do it. For anybody who lives in Palms. And and yet, I'm joking, Lily. And yet, and yet, and yet, he said, he saw. My point? They did not see him. They did not talk to Jesus. They did not approach him. And they did not invite him. So friends, it's not who they are, but spite of who they are, that Jesus walks up to them on this gravelly, desaturated coast. What I'm trying to emphasize is the singular direction of Christianity. Even just remove the spiritual side from it, Jewish students would have to hunt and search for rabbis to train them. Oh, there's a rabbi. Maybe he's got room in his like, motley crew and I can join that and teach me and you know, be with me. But this rabbi, Jesus, reverses it. He reverses it and he goes to students Something completely revolutionary. And actually, can I just take a quick pit stop? Real, real quick. Sorry, already so, so soon in the talk. This is what our discipleship groups collective church need to look like. Right here. I'm just going to be super honest. I'm so broken and sick and tired of somebody saying, I went up to these different groups and I asked if I can be in the discipleship group. And they said, no, we're full. Mm-mm. It is not how we do Discipleship Groups Collective Church. We are supposed to do the inviting in. 
like Jesus did on that coast. If you are a fool, our response is never, no, 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 go over that. Our response is never that, is we are a fool, but we will multiply, or we will invite you in, and we'll do two here or two there. You will not be left on your own. That's how we need to start inviting people into a deeper, more intimate, communal walk with Jesus. All of that to say, these fishermen's unsexy status is your status, and it's my status. It's zero, mer- zero merit, excuse me, zero earning, and zero flash. And yet, in Deuteronomy, I love what God told an entire nation of people in the Old Testament. Look at this verse from Deuteronomy. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you, chosen you to be a people for his prized possession above all the peoples of the face of the earth. And look at this. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. These fishermen do not warrant Jesus' pursuit or affection. You and I do not warrant his pursuit or affection. And yet, Jesus comes. Why? Does he just want something to eat? No, maybe. I don't know. So then why? Why did he come? Why them? Why us? And what does he want? Well, we're in luck. Jesus tells us. John chapter 10, verse 10. Another gospel in the New Testament says this. The thief, that being the devil. Yes, we are a church that believes in the devil. Comes to only to steal kill, and destroy. I, this is Jesus, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. There it is. If Jesus came to give life, that means these fishermen are lifeless. They are dead. Now, not in a weird zombie fisherman way, (laughs) although (laughs) that would be rad. Like deadliest catch, dawn of the dead, like, like a baby. Copyrighted. Don't touch it, Brian. Don't touch it. (laughs) Bob, don't touch it either. Mine. It's coming to Netflix. But this shows us why the idea, this shows us right here why the idea of inviting Jesus into our hearts is a thinning form of understanding how Christianity works. Right? Allow me to explain it this way. A baby, before it's conceived, could not ask to be born. Let me ask it, or explain it this way. A deceased man cannot ask to be resuscitated. And unless you're Lorenzo, who has died more times than you can possibly count. It's amazing. He's a freaking modern-day Lazarus. Unbelievable. Ask him how many times he's died. It's like 37 times. Ask him after church. It's great. It's an amazing story. It's not great, but I'm getting, I'm getting sidetracked. So then... A truer gospel, a truer gospel and understanding of following Jesus cannot be separated from claiming, from claiming an identity of death. Kierkegaard explains this spiritual form of annihilation in his book, The Sickness Unto Death, as death comes by building an identity on anything besides God. I'll read it one more time for you note takers. Death comes by building an identity on anything besides God. Aren't we all guilty of this? I know I am. You see, if God is the fountainhead of life and the locus of the everlasting, then to migrate away from that to anything else, well, guess what? That brings death. 
That's what the Bible calls this identity rebuild. The Bible calls it sin. Now, I know it's a very triggering word, especially for Angelinos. It's very triggering. It's a very spiritual word, but it's also a very important word. That rebranding of identity is offered in Genesis chapter 3, the first book in the Bible from the thief we read about earlier, where he tells humanity, you will be like God if you choose your own way. If you choose your own way and not his, you will be like God. Did we hear that? This is so much more than sin being bad and no-nos and don't sleep with her. That's sinful. Don't drink that. That's sinful. This is so much more than that. The sickness unto death is even the really good things we do. The charity we donate to, the time we spend at the soup kitchen, or the person we let in, like our lane on the 405, the person we do that to, any form of choosing our own way or gaining approval or acceptance apart from Jesus Christ with God is sin. It's saying, I can do it apart from Jesus. I can do it apart from you, God. And whether we realize it or not, that is a revolt. That is a mutiny to our creation, and that is a strike against our king, making us what the Bible says in Romans chapter 5, enemies with the life's life source, forming a dislocation of the heart from its true center in God. So there is no understanding a more right gospel if we don't understand the wrong it's trying to right. Now, do you have any idea what the form of punishment was for mutiny in the days of the Roman Empire? Ooh, the military term, it's full decimation. Form of de- this form of defamation, if you offended or do any of this towards Caesar, is this. Stoning, clubbing, stabbing, starvation, exposure, filleting of skin like a potato peeler. It's very Game of Thrones, like the mountain scene. You know, you got me, Kevin. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> In other words, the wages of sin is death. It's total annihilation. So now I think we're getting it. So after all of that, let's watch how the decimation of what God incarnated in this unbelievable, holy, and perfect King Jesus looks like to these sinful fishermen. Oh, he's going to light them up. Verse 19, and he said to these sinful, revolting people, follow me. After all that, he said to them, follow me. That's it. Where's the filleting? God's response to our spiritually dead soul strike is not rule keeping. Jesus doesn't offer a creed. I don't see a forcing of submission or involuntary love. There's no contract to sign. Church, even notice, visitors especially. There's not even a spiritual like dry cleaning ordinance to get yourself cleaned up. There's no commission for seminary or master's degree, and there's not even an encouragement for therapy first. It's almost as if being a sinner doesn't disqualify you. In fact, it seems as if it's a prerequisite. So then, what in the world does follow me actually mean? What does it actually mean? At the very bare bones, it's already fuller than that shallow gospel we read earlier because it's not inward facing. Follow mean, at the very bare bones, means there's a path and it means there's a person. There's a path and there's a person. But let's also just say this, especially again visitors, what? Let's be honest, rabbis, fish, fishermen, 
Sin? How does this affect me? What does this mean for me? I will fully confess it is confusing. I was speaking with a pastor recently, and he was ranting about the challenges of following Jesus, this path and this person. But not just the challenges of following Jesus in general, how confusing it is to follow Jesus today, especially, especially in metropolitan areas like ourselves. This might blow people's mind like a blue mind mind. For an example, he said, this is how confusing it is to follow Jesus today. Bear with me as I read this. Don't be offended. He said, we just had the Obama administration, our very first black president. There's much to celebrate in that. And now we've entered the Trump administration. This is a very confusing time. Or how about this? Pastors and priests all over are being ripped from their pulpits because they were sexually involved with somebody underage. And rightly so. But... Call Me By Your Name, a film about a 17-year-old sexually, or 17-year-old boy sexually intertwined with an older man, it is critically acclaimed by Hollywood to the point of receiving Oscar nominations. He went on to say, how do we follow Jesus in the Me Too movement? How? Because also where the best-selling book, Fifty Shades of Grey, portrays a woman who is sexually dominated by a man. What else, followers of Jesus? We have the strong rise of the gay rights, and yet we also have the strong rise of the alt-right. We have the rise of the nuns and the anti-organized church, and yet mega churches today are at an all-time high. I'm sorry, but a right gospel, but a not right enough gospel offers us nothing in the face of what it actually means to be a Christian today, to make a difference, to transform a life. For many of us in the church at large, we need a great reimagining of this word gospel. As it solely distinguishes the Christian message from any other faith system. So much so for us to use the word today or even for how it was used in the New Testament is very, very unique and I would even say a bit odd. Meaning it's an ancient Jewish word which we first see in the book of Isaiah of the Old Testament where it was spoken to arouse Hope to those who are uncomfortable in exile, who are in a constant state of dislocation. This comforting and thunderous heraldic announcement was used when there was a rise or an ascension of a new king or a new government. Think of it like when Rafiki raises Simba on Pride Rock. The gospel is the good news in story form of the ascension of a king of a king who knew our expired states due to the revolt against him personally. Thus, we were, Ephesians chapter 2, allow this just to minister in ways that I could never even explain it. Thus, we were in Ephesians chapter 2, dead, dead, dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following, we're all following something, following the course of this world, contrary ways to God, following the prince of the power of the air, the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body. Does this not sound like the Genesis 3 promise, right? Carrying out the desires of our flesh and our body and our mind. We were nature, oh, by nature, children of wrath, meaning you deserve death, like the rest of mankind. But, holy smokes, 
But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive, alive, alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It is not what you can offer, fishermen. That is the gospel. That has power. And any watered-down gospel of, oh, just be good and you'll go to heaven, that, to me, lacks an intellectually creditable spine. I guess it's heartwarming, but it's barely spiritually uplifting. But I would be shocked if some here would still say, I prefer that. Or maybe I wouldn't be shocked. I prefer the just, let me do good things, let me go my own way and earn my own way to heaven. See, if you're here and you're considering Christianity, and you say, Casey, I understand the gospel, which invites me to follow, but it won't be the driving force of my life, then please hear me. There isn't yet an understanding. The powerful, true form gospel brings a form of following which summons my mind, my heart, and my soul. In other words, total allegiance. A life of allegiance. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 22, in the very same gospel. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your emotions, and with all of your soul, with all of your spirit, and with all of your convictions, and with all of your mind, all of your intelligence and thought life. This is the great and first commandment. So I'm trying to lead us there rather than just sort of sneezing it out. Following Jesus in response to the gospel is holy and complete. So possessing a mere fascination about Jesus isn't enough to fulfill, nor will enact, his life-altering work. I've been trying to adhere to his teachings here and there, and I haven't seen any change. I'm a big fan of Jesus. I'm not yet quite a follower. I'm not seeing any change. Our curiosity is good. It's really good. But it should drive fervent searching and obedience to him as Lord, as the ascended king, as our master, and as our captain. I like how Pastor Kent Hughes said, it does not take much of a person to be a believer, fisherman, but it takes all there is of him or her. Relationally, communally, spiritually, materially, financially, vocationally, and sexually. Has this happened to you? Let's see how it happened for the fishermen. Verse 18. For they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. For a moment again, if I can just speak to those here who come every single week and consistently stand on the threshold of belief and disbelief, or if this is your first time and you're teetering or you're wondering or you're refusing, I know when you try to understand the gospel or Jesus, you probably do not read the Bible. When you go to understand what Jesus is all about, you're probably not going to the Bible or reading the Bible. What you're reading is, well, us. You're reading Brian, you're reading me, you're reading Andre. 
You're reading us. And in fact, I don't think it's probably too far-fetched that that's probably what's held you back from identifying with Christ in his church. And let me just say this, I get it. I get it. In fact, when I speak with people considering following Jesus, there's great trepidation because of our history and our publicized deplorable actions as a church. Because who would actually want to follow Jesus if it means I become all of these things? But notice here, in verse 18, the identity shifts with the fishermen. Jesus is not asking you or telling you to become the identities, cultural, nominal things that Christianity has become. Did we notice that? To follow Jesus is not an invitation to become a Republican. To follow Jesus is not an invitation to become homophobic. To follow Jesus is not an invitation to support inequality. To follow Jesus is not an invitation to compound cult-living, racism, judgmental, holier-than-now attitudes. To follow Jesus is not even an invitation to burn all of your secular music or to only watch Kirk Cameron movies or Fireproof or God is Dead. I stand against it. (laughs) Gross. So then, today, if you are refusing or have refused Jesus Christ, may we leave our definitions or our assumptions at the door and see that believing in the gospel by following Jesus doesn't superficially mean new things will happen on a Sunday morning. Or superficially thinking that I have new motives. No, it's about new life, a new heart, and a completely new identity. Wow! You were once this, you are now this. Something you and I cannot do ourselves. This, again, is the most unpopular message in all of Los Angeles and possibly the country, but especially Los Angeles, is you and I cannot significantly change ourselves. In the same way, you can't bring yourself back from the dead. I, uh, it's hilarious. I'm a, I'm a proud, proud member of, of Weight Watchers. So, sorry. <laughs> Wellness wins. <laughs> sorry. Sorry, Oprah. I always forget. But our community meetings where we have and we go weigh ourselves and we encourage one another, me and Velma and Sheila and Patty, what are we doing? <laughs> what are we doing? What I hear our Weight Watcher t- Wellness Wins teach for leaders say from the front of the stage is this all the time. She's saying, you have what it takes. Just believe in yourself. You can do this. Believe in yourself. And I'm in the back in full confession with my sunglasses on with arms crossed. That's how it is. I'm in full confession. And I'm listening to her rant about this. And I go, poop on a freaking stick. What are you talking about? We're all here because we can't do it. (laughs) Right? I can't change my identity. I can't change my weight, my personality, my vices, my habits by just deciding I'm going to do it. I need to spend a lot of money and certain motivations and learn new habits and form new habits and new affections. Oprah, (laughs) what we all need is an intense collision of love that the gospel offers. I heard it described this week from Aaron as the explosive power of a new affection. That's the only thing that has enough power to change our identities. 
If you don't believe me, think back upon all the events which have changed your life. Or if you don't know what's changed your life, look at your Instagram bio. It's all of your identities lined up. Okay? So think back. The birth of a child, collision, identity change forever. How about this? Perhaps a wedding, that's a collision. Your identity has changed forever. Or how about an honorable acknowledgement of a certain talent, ability, performance, collision, It shows us we cannot significantly change ourselves. It is not an act of the will. So when we experience this love, when we deserve in complete annihilation, and when somebody completely outside of ourselves comes and says, follow me, live with me, be with me, now that is a true collision And our hearts start to move towards that and be deeply changed. So as Jesus contextualizes his language, as we saw last week, it's so important. He says, I will make you fishers of men. What did he not say? And now, Andrew, you must become a fisherman. No, it's done. Boom. And to contextualize this, it means that to follow Christ gives all of us followers an eternal outward-facing meaning and message to all that we are? Are we starting to see the path and the person more clearly? You will now raise your kids or financially advise or drive an Uber as a completely new individual. You will interact with one another and your possessions and your neighbors entirely new, which is exactly why we need to do a series like this. We have to talk about what that looks like. We'll end with these verses, Matthew 4.20, and we've talked about our response all morning. Now let's see their response to all of this. Matthew 4, verse 20. Look at this first word, holy smokes. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Yikes. They left their careers like that. I kind of want to be on the coast and be like, easy. Like, slow it down. This is intense. But guess what? That's nothing compared to verse 21. This is way more dramatic. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the sons of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them. Verse 22, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed Anybody trying to understand biblical hermeneutics, listen to this closely. This is known as Hebrew parallelism. It's the equivalent of the author taking a giant Sharpie and going like this, "Mm," and underlining. Why? Because whenever there's repetition in the Bible, that's the author's way of making some sort of theme. But also note, it's it's escalated. They threw their nets off the side of the boat, and they threw their dad off the side of the boat. (laughs) At least, that's how I imagined it. Like, we're coming. That's how I imagine. But let's be honest. How unwise is this? This seems so rash. Right? So Jesus is going to call us to drop everything? Ugh. Well, what we have to see is this is the second time Jesus has spoken with these boys. The second time. The first is the Gospel of John, where they're told he is the Son of God. And John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, says, no, no, no. He's everything. He's Lord. He's master. He's captain. And they believed. 
So then what we have here, what happens from the first time they meet Jesus to the second time is that time in between was them counting the cost, the costly price of what it means to follow Jesus. What does it cost you to follow Jesus? They left their livelihood, their paychecks, their security. Now, I'm not saying Jesus will ask you to do any of that, but I'm also not saying he won't. I was told a story about a pastor in a gospel band country. Forgive me, I don't remember the exact country. Where the Christians, small group, much, much smaller than this, were having a church gathering. And the government broke in. And they went up to the pastor. And they began in front of the small gathering to boil his hands as a form of persecution in order for him to denounce Christ. So that if he did it, the queen bee of sorts, that everybody else would follow suit. This very pastor said these words. There is no easy believism in our churches. There's no shallow professions of faith or false conversions. Nobody is taking Jesus who isn't willing to lay down their life because that's the cost of naming Christ. We will never, ever, ever, ever know this form of persecution probably. What has it cost you to follow Jesus? This morning, count. It's the most important math you will ever do. John Stott, the late John Stott, wrote in his very helpful book, Basic Christianity, he says, the Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of derelict half-built towers. Holy smokes, that's, a, that's an image. The ruins of those who began to build and were unable to finish. For thousands of people still ignore Christ's warning and undertake to follow him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. Who is that here today? The result is the great scandal of Christendom today, so-called nominal Christianity. Stop there for a moment. Could it be that those who say that Christianity must be homophobic, Republican, so on and so forth, have not done a full cost of the count of what it means to follow Jesus? In countries to which Christian civilization has spread, large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. Lord, forgive us. They have allowed themselves to become what somewhat involved, enough to be respectable, but not enough to be uncomfortable. Are we starting to see the path in the person? Their religion is a great soft cushion. It protects them from the hard unpleasantness of life while challenging its place and shape to suit their convenience. My hope, this is for Collective Church, my hope for the Christians and followers of Jesus here is that we follow Jesus so wildly, so intensely, that all other attachments in our life look weak, look ridiculously small by comparison. And my hope for those who still don't know or follow Jesus is that if you can't believe any of this, stop right now and ask why. Is it a content issue? That being, there's confusion of the Christian message. Is it a coherence issue? That being objections or intellectual problems that you have with Christianity. Is it a cost issue? Afraid that it will cost too much. Allow me to ask this. 
Start here for those who are refusing and rejecting Christianity. And right now, Christians, pray in this room for anybody who might now be rejecting Christianity and can't believe it's true. Don't you at least want all of this to be true? And for those who want to follow this morning, it's as simple as repent. That being an admission and an asking for forgiveness of building our desire on anything other than God. It's simple as believing. What that means is just transferring your trust that you put on your own identity to Christ. And lastly, do not, do not leave this place without telling someone. Amen? Let's pray.